Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, gather around. It's time for another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today we are talking, that's right, Consensus Distributed 2020 Day 2, Day 2 recap. <laughs> so believe it or not, Consensus has done this thing and it's driving me nuts, <laughs> this year especially. They, they streamed the whole first 24 hours of Consensus Distributed, which mind you, I, I applaud them. It was great. It's fascinating. Uh, I, I learned so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Coindesk, right? But there's one little thing, right? You have to go and sign up through this platform. It's a little bit of a, you know, hopscotch. It's it's fine. But the problem is, is when you get inside of this, this portal that they've created, you go and click on to these different sessions and lo and behold, the video is not there. <laughs> so in order to bring you today's episode, uh, they stopped the stream abruptly at once they reach the 24 hour mark and the video is gone. <laughs> so everything they've created the past 24 hours, it can't be found. You have to really do some searching. I was able to find it on Twitter. <laughs> Luckily, they split them into three hour, six hour segments that they've accumulated over the past 24 hours. So thank you for at least doing that. And I was able to actually get some um, get some good highlights from today. It, it's, it was interesting because I was watching it for most of the day today and I was like, ooh, right there. And I jot down the timestamp and going to go back there and this is going to be great to bring y'all. And then lo and behold, I'm like at the end of the day, I'm like, OK, let's let's do this. Let's 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 strip the audio. No, <laughs> it's all gone. So they definitely need to get that fixed for next time uh, or, or else it's all just lost in the ether. No pun intended. Like it, it's, it's just not good because they have so much valuable information and there's some information I wasn't able to gather again. And that was the, the, the Bitcoin mining talk session that they did. And it was talking about everything regarding uh, the, the mining and the hash power that's going to be utilized here in the next couple of days, couple of weeks and how that's going to affect price. And it's gone. <laughs> it's nowhere. I can't find it. So it's yeah, hopefully they upload those into YouTube in the next few days. But let's get started. Consensus Distributed 2020 Day 2 Recap, starting now. Consensus Distributed 2020. Today was a little bit different. Uh, it was interesting because they had some um, interesting panels last night into into overnight. Like it was like 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m. 2 and uh, they were doing Coindesk Asia and they were getting together with a lot of people who are very important in, in the Asia 
uh, area of the world. And um, they were able to gather their opinions on where everything's going. And it was interesting enough. You had uh, you had John Carlo, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, he was uh, still up <laughs> talking about the digital dollar uh, here in uh, in Asia. So this was really fascinating because uh, him and Martin, he's a fes- uh, he's a fellow researcher uh, from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, in so it was kind of weird because we heard them talk about the the digital dollar and its relation to how it's going to look like in America. And then lo and behold, he's talking about the digital dollar and how it's going to relate to the rest of the world and to China. And this was like really fascinating uh, listen because you you can really tell like there's there's like this uh, politically correct way to say like, hey, we're making the digital dollar. It's not a threat. Don't look over here. (laughs) It was fascinating to hear him talk. So take a listen. So. Let's begin with Mr. Giancarlo. Um, please introduce what your digital dollar project in, is and its background. How can it be used in the uh, U.S. domestic economy and also especially in the uh, international economy like us in Asia? So thank you for the question. Um, the digital dollar project is a uh, private sector initiative begun earlier this year uh, with several colleagues of mine that created a not-for-profit corporation, the Digital Dollar Foundation. And together we teamed up with the global um, uh, um, uh, consulting firm Accenture to create the Digital Dollar Project. Mm -hmm. And our purpose is to uh, become a think tank for um, uh, the development of ideas around the building of a U.S. CBDC, what we call the digital dollar. And all countries, or many countries, as you know, are working on CBDC projects of their own. And and we believe a digital dollar will have some of elements, some elements that are similar to other countries, but also will have elements that are unique to the dollar, both the dollars used uh, here in the United States, but also internationally as well. So the purpose of the digital dollar project is to really serve as a, as a jumping off point for development of U.S. thinking around the development of a central bank digital currency and to work with the official sector in formulating what the digital dollar would look like, what core values, what core concepts, uh, what design choices would be built in. It's our belief at the digital dollar project that we are that society is going through the second wave of the internet. The first wave was the internet of information. This wave is about the internet of things of value. And just as most things of value are accounted in a currency and and in global commerce, many of them are accounted for in the dollar, as those things of value become digital, we believe it's essential for the, the major reserve currency to also become digital, to be programmable, to be tokenized, and to, to enter that realm of efficiency that comes with the digitization of things of value. Understood. Oh, and thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Giancarlo. You mentioned the second wave of the internet, right? Oh, yes. And if compared with other existing competitors like credit cards or the cash, especially no. in retail purchases, uh, what kind of competitive advantages does digital dollar have as a second wave of internet? Sure. So in the physical world, if you go into a shop 
you have the choice of paying for it in fiats or using a debit card or using a credit card. And a, and a, a wise consumer understands the ramifications of each of those different modalities of purchasing things. In a digital world, on, in online purchasing right now, you do not have the option of using fiat currency. You can only use basically account-based system, credit cards or perhaps debit cards. A development of a central bank digital currency would also enable you to use digital fiat payments in online purchases. And you may not want to use that for every purchase, but with a known vendor, uh, uh, let's say uh, you w wish to make a purchase from a, a, a vendor that you have familiarity with and you may be very comfortable using a, a digital form of fiat. On the other hand, with a vendor that you're not familiar with, you may want to use a credit card and to enjoy some degree of purchase price protection. And you also may want the uh, credit, uh, the short-term credit uh, that comes with the using, that comes with use of a credit card. So we believe that a digital currency does not vitiate or, or do away with the need for credit cards. It serves as another option uh, in retail online payments. Okay. Thank you. Then what do you think of the China's uh, another CBDC plan, uh, which is called DCEP initiatives? They are, there are people who put emphasis on those geopolitical implications, but you have once introduced an uh, opinion that digital dollar is necessary even without uh, the Chinese, China's digital yuan. Besides, CBDC in two layers is quite similar to China's DCEP initiatives too. So what's your idea about it? With me this morning is, is, is someone who's a much greater expert than I am in the new Chinese initiatives, and so he can perhaps give you a much more informed view on that. What I will say is we are not advocating for a U.S. digital dollar exclusively because other countries, including China, are developing CBDC. We're advocating for it for much more fundamental reasons than that, and that is the belief that we need to future-proof the dollar. We need to maximize the dollar's capability for a new digital era. If you consider currency, as I do, to be part of the, the basic architecture of an economy and of financial markets and of a financial system, then we need to modernize the dollar for a modern financial system, right. for a modern digital financial system. So this is about improving the dollar in its own right. It's about updating the architecture of the U.S. currency for a new digital era. Thank you. And uh, uh, Mr. I would like to ask to Mr. Kruzampa, could you please elaborate more? Like, why do you think the two countries are putting emphasis on CBDC when they already have well-organized and electronic payment system. So uh, in China, I think uh, the, the main reasons are domestic, and, uh, and there are a few. The first is that China had a negative experience with the first few waves of uh, digital currency, of cryptocurrency and ICOs, where it was perceived as a kind of foreign-imposed, foreign threat that the PBOC had to, the, the China Central Bank, had to figure out quickly how to respond to where there were actually positive innovations, what part was speculative, and that they didn't want to have that might be causing capital flight, for example. So part of this research project for them, which has been going on for about six years, is to be themselves at the cutting edge and know where the interesting innovations are and apply them well, rather 
rather than having to respond to innovations that come from elsewhere. Now, another element of it is about control of the financial system. So we know that Alipay and WeChat Pay are now dominant retail payment providers in China. And it's actually difficult for financial regulators to get access to data from them on payments because of the low level of power that these companies have. So CBDC is one way. If you made the underlying uh, settlement done in DCEP, it could potentially allow the central bank to get a lot more access to credit data, uh, and, sorry, to, uh, to payment data, and also to gain back some power from these companies. I think the international geopolitical side of it is a potential domestic selling point in China to maybe some of the more conservative hardliners, but I don't actually yet see a credible reason uh, that a digital renminbi at this point would help it internationalize. Renminbi is still not freely usable. That's the, probably the most important impediment to it becoming a reserve currency. And I've yet to see, uh, you know, much of this is about network effects. And since no other country has actually a fully functioning CBDC, there's not really a network to plug into at this point. So it's more of a, a distant consideration. All right, Martin. Uh, I remember reading your article uh, last July, I think, about a year ago, uh, regarding Libra. And I, uh, I remember you wrote, like, uh, China's technical um, disadvantages, uh, weaknesses, will be an opportunity for the U.S. trying to develop the uh, digital currency plan. So what, what do you think... Uh, you can say about um, merits, demerits, differences about digital dollar, Libra, and digital yuan. Can you compare all three of them? Yes. So uh, the point I was making about the disadvantages in, uh, of China is not so much technical. It's more that Chinese technology companies have this incredible market share in finance within their country, mm -hmm. but have very few uh, users for any element of the ecosystem outside of China. That's expanding a little bit, uh, but the main time that people use something like Alipay or WeChat Pay outside of the country is in, uh, is in tourism. So there is some element of cross-border involved there, but it's not necessarily going to be able to reach the kind of international scale cross-border scale that something like Libra could potentially have. Um, I think that a digital dollar would probably be the, the, by far the most attractive asset for people around the world just because it's so well known and many countries have already adopted dollars and making them digital just makes a lot of sense. Anything that the, that the PBOC comes out with as a digital yuan is going to have a lot of hurdles. The renminbi isn't used that much at the, at the moment. And I think there's still a lot of problems with both uh, transparency and, uh, and with the fact that they have a closed capital account, so it's not freely usable. Yeah, so it, to me, it sounds like, at least how they're coming off of this, this uh, panel, it sounds like they're going to release a digital dollar here within the next 12 to uh, 24 months. That's what it sounds like to me, or at least to me, that it comes off that way. Um, so really fascinating how... Um, you know, you hear them on the America side and it's more like, yeah, we're working on this. And then you hear them on the China side of things and Asia side of things. And it's more like, no, we're, we're working on this. This is why it's being done. And yeah, it's completely fascinating. This this currency war, Cold War is going to just keep brewing throughout the rest of the year. Um, all good news for Bitcoin, in my opinion. Uh, OK, so the next uh, panel that I think was 
really um, uh, very informative was Kathleen Brightman. Now, she's the course co-founder, and she's also the uh, Tezos CEO. Uh, she was one of the co-founders of Tezos. And uh, interesting enough, Tezos has a, uh, has a developer problem, as we all know. Uh, she, well, she's working on a blockchain gaming platform uh, that's going to utilize the Tezos blockchain, uh, not surprisingly. But uh, Nathaniel Whitmore, one of the one of the greatest reporters at CoinDesk, in my opinion, uh, he he had her on the show, and uh, he was just drilling her on questions about this and this and this. And uh, it, it to me, it sounds like that Tezos is looking for any kind of traction <laughs> when it comes to developers. Like to me, it sounds like they are doing well as far as, you know, staking and baking and, 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 and as, as doing that kind of part, making money for uh, institutions and, and, and that sort uh, VCs and such. But when it comes to actually creating a, a blockchain that people want to use uh, <laughs> that don't have empty blocks, uh, you can tell that this is their approach to trying to go that route. So take a listen to Kathleen as she tries to explain why she's going into blockchain gaming after co-founding Tezos. Let's start with the the context and how you got from point A to point B. You built a base layer protocol and decided for your next act to focus on a blockchain game studio. What was it about games or, or the particular type of game that you're building that seemed like such a good fit for the blockchain? Oh, thanks for asking. And um, yeah, no, no one does any of these things alone, but um, I, I do get credit for co-founding uh, the Tezos blockchain, which launched back in 2018. Um, you know, once once uh, the network and the prevailing um, blockchain kind of got its sea legs in terms of seeing an ecosystem built around it, um, I began to think like, hey, you know, what's the coolest application um, that I think could be built um, that would, you know, be expedient and kind of testing out uh, the virtues of cryptocurrency. And um, I think that smart contracts in particular do um, uh, do one thing really, really well. They help people coordinate um, and they can facilitate better secondaries markets. And so I wanted to kind of um, test that thesis out. Um, and I thought that the most broken, um, uh, fully digitized economy um, would, would be in gaming, um, which tend to have like sort of natural um, areas where um, people converge and try to coordinate themselves, um, which sounds a lot like a traditional economy, um, but has the benefit of not um, having to interact with the quote unquote real world and, you know, have this, this night tight digital loop. Um, it's funny because one of the um, one of the largest contributors to the Tezos Foundation's 2017 fundraiser um, was actually a gaming company, and so I had a little bit of a head start in the sense that um, I was familiar with some of the working theses that this company had um, when they. Um, when they started to look at a public blockchain as the source of, um, you know, potentially addressing some of the ills in their uh, native economy. Um, but I, I wasn't super um, convinced. Um, so I did a little bit of an informal survey of my own, and I looked at the different types of games that exist, and I thought that collectible card games um, in their digital format uh, suffered the most from, uh, I guess, uh, the break between how people understand their um, analog you know, economies and games and their digitized models. So um, at Coast, um, you know, I like to say that we're not necessarily a gaming studio, but we really focus more on um, facilitating better secondaries markets. And the way we've decided to choose that um, uh, is, is through the production of an original collectible card game um, that we're also looking at other um, aspects of collectible models and, and trying to create 
and you know better secondaries markets around them um, using smart contracts. So it's a bunch of bunch of interesting follow up questions. But for for people who aren't familiar, let's take it back to collectible card games because there's a precedent, and a lot of what I just heard from you is that this has to do with uh, trying to bring into digital parallel the the analog experience, right? And so in the history of collectible card games has this interesting kind of two part function where on the one hand there's players who get these cards and they play games with them and they make decks with them and they do all that stuff, but then there are these markets that around them. And in fact, the markets have been a lot of how people have gotten interested in this domain, right? NPR doing series about uh, the Black Lotus and Magic the Gathering. So I guess one of the things that's really interesting to me uh, listening to you speak is that the logic for for blockchain-based gaming has been uh, kind of... uh, argued on a couple different levels. People have talked about both true digital ownership of goods, and they've talked about this idea of making easier secondary markets. So maybe you could speak to, it sounds like for you that the secondary markets piece is really important, but maybe that that implicates the, the first part, true digital ownership by definition. Could you speak a little bit to, uh, to kind of why that secondary market piece is such an important part of the thesis for games on the blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, (laughs) a very astute summation of um, (laughs) a lot of the ideas that I've had. Um, Yeah, no, basically with with, uh, traditional collectible card games, such as um, Magic the Gathering being the most famous and the most notable, um, you know, typically in their analog versions, uh, people are like 50-50. You have this notion of like battle and, you know, actually playing the game. And then almost equally, you'll find if you go to a Magic convention or something like this, um, people are just really into collecting the cards and being able to trade um, and barter with people and kind of um, make friends um, to some extent. Like I think really what's driving this at the end of the day is the community around it. Um, you know, Fortnite now has uh, 350 million um, players, <laughs> which is insane. And, you know, um, 3.2 billion hours played in April alone. Um, you know, the, the people don't just come for the game itself. They also come to be with their friends. They come to show off. They come to express themselves. And I think, um, you know, one consistent line between Tezos and um, my thesis around Coast has been that if you empower people to kind of be able to make their own um, lot and to express themselves with using, um, you know, sort of the, the mechanisms and the um, incentives that you give them, like you really do wind up getting an impassioned um, group of folks. And so, yeah, t- to your point, um, you know, there's two axes of this. There's like the notion of actually owning um, a card, which which uh, a blockchain uniquely allows you to do and allows you to kind of port um, from one place to another. Um, one really cool thing that we can do with our game is, you know, publish an SDK and have you run alternative, you know, rules engines, right? And explore the same way that you could with a physical asset. Um, the other aspect of this is better coordination. And, um, you know, typically um, where digital collectible card games have struggled is in making people feel like they've um, become smarter um, for putting money into the game or t- for, you know, buying a card um, because they, they uh, you know, typically can't um, trade these assets in a very, um, I guess, seamless fashion, but a blockchain might allow you to do that better. And using um, smart contracts, for example, um, to facilitate a secondaries market um, for these assets um, makes it a lot easier programmatically, you know, liquid in the model that we proposed for our first game emergence. So it's really interesting. I'm going to out myself as a as a geek here. Obviously, you and I have talked about this in the past, and I, I 
started playing magic in 1994 when I was 10 years old and took a very long break, but then came back to it later in life and have always been interested in, in the, the resilience, the resonance, the long-term growth, right? This is a game that's lasted now for 27 years, uh, you know, or longer, which is really unheard of in a, a lot of game dimensions. And one of the things that's fascinating, if you look at, uh, historical antecedents in that ecosystem is the way in which the simple fact of it being this, uh, this card game, right, with physical things, is that the community of people around it have invented a huge number of the most important parts of the ecosystem now, right? Wizards of the Coast, which is the company that publishes Magic, has said numerous times that one of the formats, so there's multiple ways to play Magic the Gathering, uh, and one of the formats that is most popular, perhaps the most popular, is called Commander, which was invented by judges and later became kind of pretty much one of the biggest money makers for this company. The problem is that when you move from the, the, the offline ecosystem where the rules are inherently kind of open to you doing whatever you want to the closed ecosystem of an online game, all that creativity goes out the window. And so one of the things that it sounds like to me listening to you is that you're almost trying to use some of the features of blockchain to build the capacity for people to design the system, to reinvent the system, to reimagine the system into the actual rules of the ecosystem. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you're picking up exactly what I'm what I'm putting down. Uh, so yeah, it's. I think um, I, I think it, it comes from one thing that Hasbro does really really well um, in the context of Magic the Gathering. It has a tremendous amount of humility towards um, the people who constitute its its core demographic. Like it has a lot of reference for its end users, um, and uh, they've really preserved the. Um, Magic the Gathering brand um, by listening to the community and working largely in tandem with them. And so, um, you know, Hasbro gets the benefit of being able to publish new cards um, and to kind of add to this ecosystem, um, you know, facilitate tournaments and so forth. Um, but they listen just as much as they as they write. And um, with the benefit of having, um, you know, this this analog format is that they've, they've picked up some really good tricks. Um, they haven't been able to, I, I think, um, uh, thread some of the needles when they've gone to digital formats um, by facilitating the same uh, creativity. Um, you know, maybe maybe if they went to a blockchain, they they would they would uh, find that a little easier. Um, but yes, the idea has been um, to allow you know to, to basically work really hard on creating original and compelling um, cards and um, you know cool stuff about the game in general. Um, obviously, I have a lot of faith in my my co-founders um, who know far more about this than I do. Um, but the the main the main uh, concession that we want to make and the main um, relationship we want to have with people who, who play the game um, is to facilitate the type of creativity and self-expression that um, Magic and other uh, CCGs were able to do um, seamlessly in the physical um, world, but to add on um, better economics through the use of a um, public blockchain to coordinate um, with the uh, you know second part of this, which is um, the facilitation of, of uh, moving assets around in the game. So just just for uh, briefly, I think, for people who are listening, who are just thinking about this for the first time, what does it mean? How does a blockchain uh, mediate for real asset ownership? And how does that allow for uh, formal secondary markets to develop? Because I think that's a, that's a missing point, right? Like, what's different about a card in one of your games versus a card in Magic the Gathering Online or Hearthstone, for example? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so basically, uh, I, I suppose when these um, when these games were digitized or brought to the fore, um, they they did so using a sort of free to play model. Um, you know, basically you would you would grind and com complete tasks in order to earn credit 
um, towards towards um, purchasing assets in this game. Um, largely, the publishers of these games have restricted the movement of these assets once they are um, you know seized um, or purchased or whatever um, in, in the game, and so consequently, you have. Um, a massive a massive tax on any sort of creativity. Um, you have a strong incentive to be very conservative in how you um, express yourself with these with these um, uh, I, I suppose strategies um, because you can't opt in and out of a card as easily um, because there's really no secondary use market or if there is one it's um, taxed you know in the order of like seventy percent on the um, you know value of the card from when it was uh, when it was purchased. Got it. So with your game, basically, you officially make it you make it easier for people to actually that once they get a card, it's their asset, they can do whatever they want with it. Uh, and that's sort of not just uh, enabled, but supported or encouraged. Yeah. Um, what's more, we also have, um, you know, an auction and, and rental model um, that is uh, uh, tied to a token bonding curve. Right. So we also use this sort of novel um, piece of technology that's that's been proposed um, from you know thinkers largely in the Ethereum community um, to to have sort of like programmatic liquidity. So basically, you can buy a card, you know, for twenty bucks, and you can you know theoretically sell it back um, for like nineteen ninety five or whatever we where we programmatically decide for it to be. Um, but the idea is you don't feel dumb um, for having uh, having kind of put your put your um, stake into like one card or another, um, you know, you, you have the assurance um, that you can kind of um, experiment and, and move around freely. And we think that that's, that's really going to be appealing and actually addressing a huge problem in um, the, digital, the digital space for these, these types of games. So the, the thing with this uh, panel that really kind of irked me a little bit was, um, you know, like we haven't done a Tezos, you know, main topic just because I feel like I really want to give it some time. <laughs> There's so much going on with how it was founded and uh, so much drama around it. Uh, one of these days, we'll, we'll just have to do it. I mean, but uh, at this point, um, I, I feel like to me, it comes off as, uh, and this is no disrespect to Kathleen or anything they built with Tezos, but it, to me, this 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 uh, this idea of blockchain gaming kind of comes off as a uh, as a, a money play, right? Uh, and it, it also is a Tezos play, right? Because they want to make sure that more developers come into the Tezos uh, ecosystem. But if if they're not able to do that, and it's not they're not able to throw these assets on the blockchain, then it becomes a gaming company, right? And they can just say, oh, lo and behold, blockchain and gaming is just not ready. <laughs> like we've seen that before. We've seen that you know pivot before, right? In the past. What what I what I want to say here, and I think this is probably most important, is that most people aren't realizing that when it comes to blockchain gaming and uh, trying to you know roll that out, I would say that's years away. I, I don't I don't think you know any gamer that I know of, uh, and I work with a lot of them, are going to <laughs> you know start getting these digital assets just because it's on Tezos or just because you know uh, you know they can move it here and move it there. I think it's going to have to be implanted in from the the current, um, you know, or you know, just premier games that are out there. Like it's going to take Fortnite to want to do digital assets on the blockchain, right? It, it, you're not going to be able to, um, you know, move people away from Fortnite. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Another thing too that that wasn't mentioned here, 
was a digital identity. I think ultimately, before we solve the whole digital assets part of things, and I think ENS, Ethereum name system, and, and what they're doing is really a good start. But I think ultimately, we need to make sure that we have a digital identity that's tied to a, to a blockchain or, or can be on the blockchain. And at that point, you have everything that you own digitally attached to your identity. So it can never be taken from you. It can never be lost or stolen. Uh, it, it's it's all yours, right? And then at, once you build out that kind of base layer, you know, no pun intended, then you're able to really start utilizing these digital assets and start bringing them in. Because uh, right now, like me, for example, have ton of I have a ton of NFTs. Uh, I have a ton of crypto kitties hanging all over the place. Some are in MetaMask. Some are in Coinbase Wallet. Some are in um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, freaking uh, Exodus, like they're 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 everywhere on Ledger, like they're Kiki, like it's just everywhere. Like all these NFTs, all these uh, these tokens that I've gathered, all these like uh, cool little emblems from going to Ethereum Summit that I got, like uh, like they're all every they're everywhere, right? Um, so it would be cool to have a decentralized identity that's just car, right? And then anytime I, I get some of these NFTs, they just show up right on my uh, on, on my digital identity card, right? Or whatever that looks like in the future. And I think the fact that, you know, there's very few companies trying to solve that problem first, they can, they, they kind of get it, right? But I think until you solve that problem, um, you don't want to create even more of a mess <laughs> by introducing blockchain gaming. And that's just my opinion. And honestly, and this is that's no slight against what they're building there at Course uh, or Tezos or anything, or even Ethereum for that matter. It's just that um, that's how that's what needs to be solved first, in my opinion, before this really starts taking shape. And maybe that comes with the digital dollar. Maybe the digital dollar and the decentralized identity uh, portion of it comes with it. Who knows how that's going to work? But somebody's going to going to crack that that um, that little nugget, and that's just going to open so much potential to to a lot to a lot more blockchains to really utilize NFTs and digital assets and tie them to a decentralized identity. Until that gets solved, I just don't think any of this is going to you know take shape unless you know, a premier game adopts a blockchain and says, this is our digital assets. This is where they live. And you can take them to any other game that we own. Right. I think that's the only way that works before decentralized identity, uh, you know, can, can get frog leaped over. Right. So just my opinion, but uh, yeah, Nathaniel, great job on interviewing her. <laughs> I would say he kind of won that one in a weird way. Uh, and I'm sure I'm sure he didn't mean to. He was just he was just like he just knew more about the subject. Uh, OK, next up, we have Caitlin Long. Uh, she is a 22 year Wall Street veteran. She she makes her rounds around all over the crypto space. She's been on tons of different podcasts. Um, she always talks about Wyoming and the oasis for blockchain companies that it will become uh, because they have enacted 13 uh, blockchain enabling laws from 2018 to 2019. Uh, she has she has uh, she has, you know, old ties to Wall Street. Uh, she, used to, she used to run Morgan Stanley's pension solutions business. She, she's seen it all. Um, so take a listen to her as she talks about Bitcoin and crypto custody, because I think she really has. Now, I wouldn't say she created a problem, but she made us aware of a problem that we probably didn't even know we had, um, but she has the expertise to solve it. So take a listen to this. It's really fascinating. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's nice <laughs> to be with you. 
Man, it's uh, I was thinking back. Um, the the last time we talked was the day that you announced Avanti, which I think was February twenty fourth, and I remember because it was a Monday, and it was the first day that markets in the U.S. even recognized that COVID nineteen was going to be a thing, even yeah. though people like you had been talking about it since the end of January and talking about you know wh- what the the potential might mean. But we'll we'll get to that. But but let's come back to uh, Avanti first. What is Avanti? Uh, why did it feel important to to focus on this to start Start a new type of financial institution? Well, first of all, um, Avanti is in the process of applying. So we are not yet <laughs> a bank, but we will be applying for a bank license. And that's what's new and different. It will be the first truly natively um, uh, crypto industry owned uh, bank that will be serving exclusively the, the, the crypto industry. And it, it, it will be a chartered bank, if we, assuming we do get our charter, with a Fed master account. Um, that's the, the, the real aha of this is that there are no banks in the U.S. that are allowed to custody crypto assets because they're being blocked by their existing regulators. And the exchanges and custodians that do custody crypto assets do not have direct access to the Fed. So here's the aha. It is not possible to do delivery versus payment, atomic swap, et cetera, against a digital asset and a dollar, but Avanti will be able to bring that to the U.S. market for the first time, assuming we get our charter. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Like I, like I said at the top of this, um, uh, you know, everyone's trying to reinvent banks in some way or another, but I think a lot of those things have to do with simplifying user experiences, right? Trying to kind of cater to the most basic kind of day in, day out functions where you guys are kind of designing from the ground up for a new type of ecosystem, a new type of asset. And I know that one of the things that makes you different is that you and Avanti and the state of Wyoming, where you're based, have a pretty different set of beliefs about issues like uh, property rights and reserves than today's financial institutions. Can you speak a little bit to just how you actually think differently, what the, the different belief set is, even, even beyond just the assets themselves? Well, it's a belief set that is consistent with the core philosophy of crypto, that, uh, that individuals should be able to have a direct property right in their financial assets. It doesn't exist in traditional financial assets today. And uh, Wyoming law was, it, we created this special purpose depository institution, it, which is a new type of bank charter. It's a narrow charter that allows the bank to accept deposits, but not to lend. Um, so it's essentially a bank that is a, a payment services institution, uh, and it is, th- it, it is therefore able to both provide custody services and payment services within the same legal entity. So you don't have to, s- you don't have to settle those two, the two legs of the trade sequentially, which is exactly what happens now. Um, even, even those that are, that, are, that are claiming there's direct settlement of the payment, there's still not direct settlement of the payment because you still have the counterparty risk that the bank might fail. Um, and so so uh, it, this, this philosophy of property rights is really important, and it's ensconced in the Wyoming law. We will be able, assuming we get our charter, to offer um, uh, uh, custody services on, on a legal term that's called a bailment. It doesn't exist today. When you, when you store a Bitcoin at an exchange or at a custodian, you don't actually own the Bitcoin. It's an IOU. But what's going to happen in Wyoming when the speedy banks, the so-called speedy banks, special purpose depository institutions open their doors, is that we will actually have the ability to have the same legal regime as a coat check or a valet parking regime where I'm giving up temporary possession of my 
property, but it's not, I'm not giving title to, to the custodian. Um, right now, you're giving legal title when you, when you have, hold your exchange, uh, your, your coins at an exchange or a custodian. You're, they're not only in possession of the private keys, but they also have the legal title. We're making the distinction that those two things are not necessarily the same thing. You can, like a valet parking arrangement or a coat check, hand over temporary possession but not actually, temp- uh, not actually ownership. And as a result, when you put your, your coins into uh, a, a third-party um, uh, custodian, you actually still retain the legal title. And all they are doing is just being a money warehouse for you, just providing a service. They're not a counterparty. And if they go bankrupt, you're not stuck in a, uh, in a, in a, in a nasty, long drawn out bankruptcy process. That's a huge difference from what exists today. It doesn't exist in the market today. It's really fascinating. I think that it's uh, it's almost um, it's almost easy to be reductive about uh, something like this in the sense of it being like, oh, cool, it's a crypto native bank. It works on top of crypto uh, in a way that's very different. But I think that in some ways, if you watch kind of the larger macro conversation about how the economy is structured, the conversation that people are starting to have more and more, which is a conversation that's very very fluent for the Bitcoin world, but not so much for other areas, is the conversation about the the fundamental nature of the system as inflationary versus deflationary. So uh, Jeff Booth recently wrote a book called The Price of Tomorrow, which is all about moving to a deflationary system that rewards savings rather than disincentivize savings. And in some ways, the crypto community, the Bitcoin community, that is the hodlers, are at the vanguard of that shift where they, they've invested in an asset that is meant to uh, grow in value over time to reward savings uh, rather than be something that to participate in the economic system, you just have to lend it out, relend it and get further lines of credit. And in some ways, it feels like Avanti is, is maybe the first native institution to that different way of looking at the economy in general. Yes, um, I think so. First of all, I, I want to clarify, we're not a crypto bank. That phrase is mm-hmm. easy to, to use, but, uh, but the, the services that we are providing on our balance sheet are exclusively US dollars. We are allowed to custody crypto through the trust powers of the bank. That may sound like a distinction without a difference, but to regulators, it's a big deal. So uh, so, so I don't use that phrase, crypto bank. We are a bank serving the crypto industry uh, that, that can provide custody services um, off our balance sheet. But um, to, to answer your question, yes. Um, we, we are, as a, as a bank that's not lending, we're obviously not what a lot of folks think as a normal bank. And again, we, we don't have our charter yet, but the, the Wyoming Speedy Banks uh, in general, um, th- these, are, these are banks that, that have full access to deposit-taking capabilities in the way that uh, money transmitters or trust companies do not have in the United States. Uh, but um, um, we cannot make loans. And as a result, everything on the Speedy Bank's balance sheets is 100% backed by definition. Um, the, 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 the dollar deposit liabilities are 100% backed, required to be 100% backed uh, under the law by um, either deposits directly at the Fed or uh, treasury bonds or other so-called risk-free assets. Um, and, uh, and then even in the trust business, lending is permitted by the statute but reapplication is not permitted. That's where so many of the games are being played. Um, and frankly, I've, I've been pretty critical of, of the existing infrastructure in the, in the crypto industry because we have no clue whether any of the exchanges or custodians are solvent. 
Um, I think the ones that actually do come into Wyoming will be making quite a statement when they come in, because if they can comply with that requirement, then that'll tell you that they're actually, uh, well, it's at least another indicator uh, among many potential types of indicia that uh, that that uh, the, the exchange or custodian is is solvent, but right now you really don't have any of them. Um, none of them are audited. Um, um, none of them are are publishing proof of reserves, and none of them are subject to legal regimes that require 100% reserves. Uh, and even uh, you know, in the in the state of New York, where a lot of the regulated ones have trust companies, there is no requirement not to rehypothecate assets. In Wyoming, there's an explicit requirement that, that uh, the speedy banks cannot rehypothecate assets. They can lend, but you can't re-lend the same collateral a second time. It's really interesting. It's it, one of the things that's been fascinating is seeing how much this sort of this change, this different type of institution that you want to build, goes hand in hand with redesigning. I mean, you you literally this came out of in some ways you designing or helping design a different regulatory regime to enable this type of thing, right? It's a different way of thinking of uh, of how to design it, and then uh, a different application of the business. But I, so I, I wanted to go back, I guess, to you know what we've lived through in the last couple months. You announced. Devante, like I said, just just as it was really starting to hit home in the U.S. that this was going to be a thing, how has yeah. the narrative uh, for for this, the motivation for it, or just the way that people perceive it, changed since that announcement? What are new challenges, or what are new tailwinds that are helping your cause? Well, uh, actually, it's 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 been a tailwind. Um, I must say, on the engineering team hiring uh, our CTO Brian Bishop, who's amazing, um, has said. It usually would take three to four months to find the the engineers with the skills that he's looking for, and he's able to find them um, in, in in relatively short order. So that's been uh, been something that's been an advantage to us. The other piece of this is, I think, the idea of having a non lending bank. You know, when I first started talking to folks about this in January, a lot of folks were saying, you know, how would that be able to compete with a bank that can lend? Because a bank that can lend can can make money off the leverage and can uh, subsidize the cost of, of doing business in a way that you would not be able to because you're not making a spread on your customers' deposits. And uh, and so ironically, the fact that, you know, interest rates are back down at zero now, um, and, uh, and, and in fact, now we actually have some interesting questions. What do the ba- balance sheets of traditional banks actually look like? The truth is no one knows. The uh, decision has been made that uh, the loan losses are not going to have to be recognized this year. So 2021 is going to be the time when loan losses are, you know, when the actual cash flow uh, losses are, are going to have to be recognized, um, even though they're not going to be recorded uh, as, as much on an accounting basis up front. So we won't know how, how well capitalized the banks are until 2021. And that's about the time when the speedy banks will be uh, hitting the market. And so it's, it, it, the customers are going to have an interesting choice. Would you rather deposit your money at a bank that's not paying you interest but is leveraged? Or would you rather deposit your money at a bank that's not paying you interest but isn't leveraged? That's a, that's a pretty, in my view, pretty easy uh, pretty easy choice. Hey, I want to go back to the point on lending because I may have confused folks when I talked about um, the no rehypothecation because um, yes, a speedy bank can lend, but it's a non-lending bank and that may seem like a logical contradiction. Here's the difference. And it, it comes down to the fact that the crypto 
custody business is done out of the trust department of the bank. It's not lending for the bank's own balance sheet. So a customer can direct that, that it's deposited crypto be lent out to a willing lender, but the lender will not be the bank itself. So essentially all the bank is doing is basically just providing a marketplace to match borrowers and lenders. Um, we don't intend to have a lending product up and running um, immediately. I'm laying out though that the statute in Wyoming does permit that. Wanted to make that clear just in case. Uh, I, I was assuming there'll be Twitter questions about that. Uh, wait, how, wait a minute, how do you lend out of a non-lending bank? Uh, so hopefully now I answered it. So it was interesting how this speaking came up today. And then lo and behold, <laughs> like it got announced. This is probably the biggest news that came out of today. But right after Caitlin's talk, I want to say it was like minutes. I, I see a tweet and it says JP Morgan extends banking services to Bitcoin exchanges. What? That's right. JP Morgan is said to be now serving crypto exchanges. Do you hear what I said? JP Morgan, <laughs> Jamie Dimon, the one that the one that hates Bitcoin. Remember that? So they are going to be serving crypto exchanges. And guess who are the first two? Coinbase and Gemini. They're the first two clients to JP Morgan. So this is the first time JP Morgan has taken clients from the crypto space. But Coinbase and Gemini accounts were approved last month. Freaking the Winkle bosses have been hiding this for over a month. <laughs> what is going on? And, and now the transactions are starting to be processed. And this is all coming from Wall Street Journal, right? And they have said that JP Morgan is reportedly providing cash management services to the crypto exchanges and handling dollar-based transactions for their US-based customers. Now, this will be a process of wire transfers and deposits and withdrawals uh, all through automated clearinghouse right? ACH network. But this is like, and this is, this is coming from the block here because the block did an exceptional uh, job of trying to find out like, okay, what do, what do we know? Uh, who do we know that's, that's on Wall Street that we can talk to? Uh, so they reached out to somebody who, who's a banker at JP Morgan and, and they, and this person said, we don't have a name, but according to the block, they said, it's quite significant news in my opinion. He goes on to say, there is little business and fees associated with processing wire and ACH payments. I would expect that there are other associated benefits to JPM and any associated banking services. Additional collaboration with both of those firms, meaning Coinbase and Gemini, potential for winning any future IPO or another angle such as JPM coin being offered on either of those platforms. He's basically saying this banker at JPM, JP Morgan's basically telling the block like, Hey, this is, this is like the least thing they could do is by offering, um, you know, you know, them, uh, uh, you know, cash management services and just handling dollar based transactions and ACH. Right. Like this is the least thing they could do. He's like, no, he's like, this is a different play. This is a play for either their IPO or uh, them trying to get their JP Morgan coin into their platforms. Right. So this banker added that the whole of Wall Street will notice this news, just like Paul Tudor Jones on Monday. Right. When it came out that. This billionaire guy was going to start investing in Bitcoin. Well, now with the news that JP Morgan's going to be working with Coinbase and Gemini directly, he, this banker says, according to the block in the report, that Wall Street will notice this news and it may lead to further doors being open for crypto firms at other banks. Um, so 
in, in other words, <laughs> the largest bank, <laughs> one of the largest banks in America is offering crypto exchange, exchange services. That means a fuck ton for the credibility of this space. So we are like at a pivotal time right now uh, when it comes to Bitcoin. Right now, <laughs> don't 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 waste any other time. Uh, not, not telling your family and friends that you need to buy some Bitcoin, even if it's like a hundred bucks or ten bucks. You need to buy some and, and just not think about it, because at this point, JP JP Morgan is way bigger news than Paul Tudor Jones, <laughs> in my opinion. JP Morgan uh, working with Coinbase and Gemini. And allowing for you know just basic stuff, according to this uh, Wall Street banker, um, is just the beginning of it. Wait until they find out how much Coinbase and Gemini are making behind the scenes. I'm sure they already know. Uh, these guys are making in the millions, you know, a billion, right? So, yes, J.P. Morgan can see that uh, every other asset out there, S&P 500, doesn't matter. It, it's just not living up to what Bitcoin and crypto is doing this year. We're just far ahead, right? So. They're making a play. Uh, they're making a play for the crypto space, and this this is always we always knew this was going to happen. Uh, it's just funny that uh, it, it took it took COVID and it, it took uh, uh, you know printing a fiat for them to see it. But uh, some people see things before others. So yeah, that was really fascinating to hear Caitlin talk about uh, creating crypto crypto. Now, I don't want to say bank, but creating a crypto custody <laughs> platform company that assists with banking <laughs> for, for crypto firms or Bitcoin firms. Uh, so, and then this comes out right after that. It was just like, wow. Um, so she's definitely in the right space for all this. And, and the fact that JP Morgan is trying to jump into that space tells you exactly, you know, where her head is at and why that's important. So uh, it's going to be completely fascinating and make sure you, you tell everybody about this. Cause this is, this is a one eight, this is a 360. Uh, Jamie Dimon was telling telling everybody that he doesn't like Bitcoin. Bitcoin's a, a scam. It's a, it's a Ponzi. Uh, and now you're you're allowing Coinbase and Gemini to work directly with you. What? Yeah, never say never. Um, so uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me here in the next week or so, <laughs> even a month from now, we get uh, Ray Dalio and uh, we get Warren Buffett, you know, coming to CNBC and saying. Yeah, we're investing, you know, 5% into Bitcoin when it's really like 20%. That wouldn't surprise me here now, uh, the, 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 the stage that we're in. So make sure, uh, and me, like personally, me, myself, like uh, I've already I've already allocated enough Bitcoin where I feel good. Like if it starts soaring here tomorrow or the next day, I don't think it will. But if it, if it did, uh, I feel good enough knowing like, hey, I invested as much as I could into Bitcoin at this point. There's nothing I could have done other than, you know, selling personal items. <laughs> so make sure that you're 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 holding uh, here for this next major bull run and make sure you have enough. Because, uh, you know, one thing I learned in 2015 uh, and seeing it climb to 27 to what it was in 2017 is just not having enough money into Bitcoin uh, and having to make it and having to make the 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 having to make the most out of these uh, lower quality alts in order in order in order to make some money uh, during that bull run. Uh, do you guys remember Verge was one of them. <laughs> I think we had talked about it. I forget what episode it was. And I'm kind of steering off topic, but I think it was like forget what episode it was. I think I said I was like I'm going to put like $100 in Verge and it was like 2 tenths of a cent or something and then it climbed to like 18 cents 
like 20 days later or whatever it was like, yeah, made a lot of money. <laughs> like it's crazy. Uh, that's what, that's how, that's how the, 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 the whole bull rally was in 2017. I don't know if it's going to get like that in 2017, but, uh, I do remember thinking like, man, I wish I had more Bitcoin and I just didn't, it was just too expensive by that point. So yeah, you want to make sure you have enough Bitcoin. Like we're literally headed towards, you know, unless, unless more people start coming out and you're seeing the price get above nine K today. I mean, yeah, it's, we're going to, we're going to talk all about Bitcoin later in the week. Once we get consensus done with, with so much bullish news coming out today. It's fascinating. Okay. And our last, this is our last one. The, the last, the last one has to do with Quadriga CX because this kind of surprised me. I didn't think Coindesk was actually going to do a panel on the bankruptcy of Quadriga CX, but Gosh, man, hearing this this guy named Tong Zhou talk about how he was affected by Kujia CX, man, I just feel for him. Uh, so take a listen to um, this whole story and, and how these people who had a lot of money on that exchange lost it. It's sad. Take a listen. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I'm kind of a non-standard Kujia user in the sense that I didn't really use exchange for trading crypto. Uh, I was just using it to kind of bring my funds back from the U.S. because I used to live in the U.S., um, so I had a, a savings there, right? And at the time, um, I decided to quit my job. I didn't like it, um, and I just wanted to take a break. And of course, with the U.S. visa and everything, I uh, couldn't really stay there, so I decided to sell my apartment at the time. And then I was thinking about how do I get this money back to Canada because I want to eventually reside back in Canada in Vancouver, right? Uh, so I was looking at the different options, and... Um, you know, some people might say, why don't you just use the bank and do a, a bank wire, but the bank takes commission fees. And, you know, that's a lot of money when you're talking about uh, 400,000 US dollars, right? So I was looking at alternative solutions. And of course, there's also over other over-the-counter services uh, like OFX. Um, but I was looking at Bitcoin because I thought, well, you know, moving large amounts of money, you know, very like fast and easily, uh, isn't this what Bitcoin was designed for? And you know, I didn't, well, I wasn't too big of a crypto trader, but, you know, I already traded some amounts before and I never had any issues with those crypto exchanges and I've used them big and small. I've used Coinbase, I've used Bitrex, Gemini, those are big ones, but also smaller ones like uh, Blue Trade and Talk Satoshi and CryptoBridge as well. None of those had any issues, right? So you can call me gullible for using Kadriga, but at the time, you know, Kadriga was one of the top two Canadian exchanges along with CoinSquare, right? But Kajiga had less fees. And at the time it also had a premium, an arbitrage premium, if you will. I use arbitrage in quotes, it's not really arbitrage. But um, at the time I thought like, you know, you look into it and it's like, oh, there's a CIBC lawsuit going on. Uh, that's why there's this premium. And that's, that was a very, very rational assumption, right? To make. And I thought, well, maybe if I could just wait a few months and to get this lawsuit cleared up then I'll get all my money with a 10% bonus. So. That's why I decided to move all my money through Kadriga. And lo and behold, the four months, I guess it was like September. I know there's probably people from clients before, but it was mostly September, October, November, December, 2018, where most of the affected users, I think, lost their money. And I was actually in one of those completed withdrawals bucket, which is that they market completed and nothing actually shows up. Like they don't actually you know, give you the money, which makes it even harder for EY you know, to count these claims. So um, that's, <laughs> that's basically what happened. It was just a really, really unlucky situation for me. I was just trying to move my money and trying to, you know, do this new way of moving it. And I thought I was being clever and I got really burned for it. 
I just want to know what, when that first happened, what was your reaction? Like, was it screaming? Was it crying? Well, it was, it was disbelief. I was like, no way, this couldn't happen. It's like, it's like, I never really even traded that much before, right? And this is like the only time I did decided to move anything larger than 10,000 at once. And I was like, wait, this can't be real. I mean, <laughs> it was like a, it was like a nightmare, you know, a bad nightmare is like, really, did I just wait, did I just lose my life savings just like that? And not only that, but the story, right? It's like the CEO suddenly dying in India. I was like, this can't be real. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't believe it at the time. It's just shocking. Yeah, well, people on the chat are saying, whoa, this is tragic. So uh, they feel you hard. Um, Nick, I'll pass it to you for the next question. Yeah, so um, Tong, I actually want to just ask you one more question. You've been an administrator in one of the Telegram groups for the um, affected users. And over the last, I guess, year and a half, it's kind of, I'd say the mood has changed a couple times in there. Can you just maybe speak really quickly to, you know, what the general impression is of the folks who are in that Telegram channel who have, you know, suffered losses and kind of what you see as the ideal outcome for them? Sure. So uh, when this first happened, uh, there's a bunch of Telegram groups made. Uh, Kajigo and Coverage is just the biggest one. And when it first happened, you know, people were very active because very people were very angry. They're very frustrated. Uh, they want to know what went on. Uh, you know, how could this happen? Right. They want to know answers to the questions. Um, and like, unfortunately, as time went by, I don't think we really got many of those uh, really answered. But it's just, yeah, I feel like people guessed Initially, it was they were trying to vent their anger and frustration, and as time went on, I guess many people just accepted defeat. <laughs> uh, I know there's there's people still doing investigations, uh, like private, you know, citizens or affected users who are doing their own investigations. But uh, a lot of you see the Telegram activity has died down, right, in the past uh, few months because EY basically sent out the the message that you had to you know claim, but that was in June 2018 or 2019, right, June last year. Uh, and we only got an update today. So it's been a long time since they gave us an update. And I guess people just kind of accepted that, oh, we don't know how long this is going to take. This is going to take a long time. We're going to get nothing back. Uh, and yeah, it's just been a lot of anger, frustration. Now it's just, uh, what do we do, right? <laughs> this, now we've got the numbers in and it's, it's yeah. kind of unbelievable, right? It's like, how could, it's, it's like 100% of people claimed. How often does that happen, right? 100% of people like claim if you look down at the value of uh, adjusting for the currency uh, exchange values and the cryptocurrency values back in February 2019, it's pretty much the exact full amount, right? And that's, it's just unbelievable. And honestly, it just raises more questions than answers. And I think people really want answers from EY, from MT, uh, RCMP, of course, they just, we just want updates. And we just haven't been getting enough answers out of, out of people, you know. Um, I do want to point out there are a bit of discrepancies from what originally was estimated to be um, versus what came in, particularly on the fiat uh, holdings. Uh, there's about 25 million Canadian. Um, that's uh, 
claims that came in that are higher than anticipated. And I think, you know, you are one of those ex those examples where, you know, Quadrigo is really the worst case example of what an exchange can do in terms of just standard operating practices. You know, they weren't keeping records and simple things like accounting, they weren't doing. So if a user may, you know, sent um, cash for, for withdrawal, uh, you know, that was taken off the books on the, on the actual exchange, but it, the money was never actually sent. So, you know, on, on the records that came in, it looks like it happened, but, uh, you know, users never got those funds. So there are about 25 million Canadian discrepancies that, you know, we now have that will have to be worked through. And that's one of the reasons too, that, you know, this claim process takes a little bit longer is because there are, you know, some, some discrepancies like that, that came up. So I, I don't know if this is a, a Mags question or an Evan question. Um, people in the chat, are the addresses known? Wouldn't that make it super obvious that the coins were moving? And I think this is as it relates to, you know, did anyone else within Quadriga CX know what Gerald Cotton was doing? Because there was a lot of fraud that was happening and, and seemingly people are not believing that someone else didn't know. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, maybe I'll start off and then I'll kick it up back to you, Evan. So what we do know is you're right. There's transparency around um, crypto and that's, that's the lovely thing is we can actually see these funds moving. Um, unfortunately, you know, they went to other exchanges. Some of these exchanges are in other jurisdictions. So it, you know, you have to kind of work within those legal frameworks um, and it makes that kind of process a lot more expensive. And, and one of the things that um, maybe we didn't raise in this discussion, but you know, what happened there was there were fake accounts that were created and those fake accounts traded against um, users and also, you know, um, accounts were funded, but they weren't funded with real dollars. And part of that problem there was that Jerry actually wanted to be invisible in terms of what he was actually doing on the exchange. So his activities weren't tracked. S things like, you know, funding with fake dollars. So the money or the crypto got sent out potentially from these fake accounts. And, you, you know, I think Nick mentioned initially there were you know, he sent it to exchanges, there were margin trading, and he had something like $80 million in, in losses, because he wasn't a very good trader. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of where the money went, but we can only see up to the point where it hits the exchange on the blockchain. And from there on, um, it, it takes a lot more, maybe Evan, you can kind of speak to that piece around how, how you would normally determine what happens. Uh, well, maybe not so much from the, the blockchain, but I think one point to keep in mind is that Ernst & Young conducted an investigation where, uh, you know, from the reports, we know they, they spoke to the other people who worked at uh, the exchange. And uh, I guess I gather from the reports, what was conveyed to Ernst & Young is that Gerald Cotton controlled everything. He had the keys. Uh, there wasn't any monitoring. So I, I, I take from that that the, the implication is that no one, no one else knew anything uh, about what was going on. And certainly they weren't going to volunteer if they had any, any suspicions. I think what may be interesting is that, you know, as, as noted earlier, there are a number of different investigations going on. Uh, there is the, the, you know, the RCMP is apparently investigating. Uh, there's a, uh, and I don't, they've publicly confirmed this. So I don't think it's confidential anymore, but the Ontario Securities Commission is uh, a regular securities regulator in Canada that has confirmed it's conducting its own investigation. Uh, and then of course there's the FBI though, their ability to investigate uh, Canadians in, in Canada is, is somewhat limited. Uh, I think the, the difficulty though is, is that we really won't, they may know things, they may learn things, but we won't ever know what these investigations have turned up. And unless and until 
some charges are laid. Uh, and even then we may never know all the details unless there's a trial. Uh, that's just unfortunately the way that regulatory and criminal investigations work is that unless there's a, a full-blown trial in, in the public eye, they're not going to know what, what they know. Um, but you know, to the question of what, what others within the organization have known, uh, it's an open question so far. Ernst & Young has not indicated that anyone else within Quadriga knew uh, the, the scale of, of what Gerald Cotton was apparently up to. Um, whether that's correct, I suppose, maybe that's something the, uh, the regulatory and criminal inf- investigations will turn up in the future. Yeah, just uh, completely sad news. And, and, and that was one of the last panels they had today. Um, but overall, I would say, um, you know, day two for for Consensus Distributed 2020 was uh, was pretty good and a little bit all over the place. Um, I, I did love the the the, uh, the the Coindesk Asia portion of the of the talks this morning and, and overnight. Uh, I wish, man, I wish there's still video of all that stuff. It, it's all gone. Um so that was a bummer because there's a lot of good content that came out of that. Um, and then also was the uh, mining, the Bitcoin mining talk that is gone and missing now. So hopefully those two will come up when we'll play it here later this week. Uh, we got Coindesk day two to day three tomorrow and then day four on Thursday and then day five on Friday. Uh, most of these are just workshops. Uh, most of them you'll find uh, talk about like. You know, using Tor and, and, and using uh, ZK Snarks and just uh, a lot of interesting and cool ways to hide your identity online. Uh, there's also some Bitcoin workshops. So they're a little bit all over the place as far as, um, you know, content. Uh, but uh, be looking out for our uh, our probably day three, four, five kind of, you know, squished into one <laughs> episode coming out later this week, probably on Friday, uh, just unless unless there's something major that comes out tomorrow on day three, which I doubt it, but uh, maybe day four, maybe there's something major that comes out on, th- on Thursday because Thursday is another news press day. So um, yeah, so just be, looking, be on the lookout for that. And then uh, look for our Thriller Insights this weekend. We're going to be doing a, uh, a complete deep dive into Bitcoin and where we think where we think we're headed now that uh, everything is out of the way as far as uh, blockchain week. And then um, probably early next week, we're going to dive into that uh, monetary inflation uh, in Thriller Insider that I wanted to do because there's a lot of information there. And then so the last piece of news that kind of came out today, and this was, man, this kind of sucks, um, was Ton Ton. I don't know if you remember that 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 blockchain project that Telegram was was working on. Well, Pavel Durov he wrote in his public channel on Tuesday that Telegram Open Network Ton project was discontinued, and this was because of the legal fight with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. I think it's hilarious that you have the SEC fighting uh, Telegram, and you also have the SEC fighting uh, uh, Kick, which is also a messaging uh, platform. Uh, I think I think that's uh, totally not fair. Um, but that is their you know, prerogative to uh, go after whoever they want to go after. Um, he did. He did let it be known, and this is what he said to Rav. He's the uh, he's the founder of Telegram. He said, "Sadly, the U.S. judge is right about one thing: we, the people outside the U.S., can vote for our presidents and elect our parliaments, but we are still dependent on the United States when it comes to finance and technology." He wrote, he also said that the dollar and its influence on the global financial system give the U.S. immense power. He also said that um, he also said that it influences Apple and Google to remove apps from their respective app stores. 
So he says, so yes, it is true that other countries do not have full sovereignty over what to allow on their territory. But he did say that um, I want to conclude this post by wishing luck to all those striving for decentralization, balance and equality in the world. You're fighting the right battle, he said. This battle may well be the most important battle of our generation. We hope that you succeed where we have failed. Um, I think those are very fitting words to what occurred here uh, with the SEC. And I, I sternly believe that. I think decentralization is a must in this day and age. Uh, it, it'll, it'll fix a lot of things, especially poverty uh, and, uh, and famine across the world. And I think uh, by leveling the playing field with something like Bitcoin, um, I think it's a very important battle for sure. So it's kind of sad day, you know, with, uh, with, with Ton being officially dead, but we'll see how that kind of plays out. Apparently they forked the project because it is open source and there's somebody trying to create their, their own, their own Ton um, project and it's going to be open source Telegram. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, that's kind of getting worked on right now. I put myself on the newsletter just, just in case, you know, it turns into something I want to be in the know of what happened. So I'll let you guys know as soon as I find out if that actually ends up catching on. But um, yeah, super fascinating day for day two. That JP Morgan news was out of left field. Totally didn't see that coming. And um, this week, I, I would say Consensus Distributed 2020 has, has taught me one thing. We are realizing that these banking <laughs> companies and these uh, major institutions are taking a look at Bitcoin. And they're seeing uh, they're seeing the the profits they can make from it, and so they're 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 diving into it right now. Uh, either you know finally looking at it with fresh eyes, or they're uh, you know going to be making big moves here in the short term. So, like I said, you had uh, you had TD Ameritrade and Fidelity, you know, already in the space the past two years, and now J.P. Morgan, and who knows, maybe Wells Fargo. Maybe Citibank. Who knows? Who knows who else is going to come next? But Goldman Sachs. Who knows? It's going to be fascinating because now it's now it's like uh, now it's kind of like musical chairs. <laughs> There's not going to be a, a seat for everybody. So people are sitting down. You might want to grab a chair while it's still there. Uh, yeah, completely fascinating. And then the whole digital dollar. We learned a lot about that this week. Uh, that was fascinating too. So in 2018, there was a lot of people that left the crypto space. A lot of people. I remember it was just like an exodus, a mass exodus, because everything went down. Everything went down in price. Um, what we're going to see later this year and into next year is just a mass amount of people into the crypto space again. So be that person to the people around you and online as well, too, and, and explain things to them. Uh, you remember how hard it was to figure out how to use an exchange when you first started, right? You remember how hard it was to understand why Bitcoin is better than Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> so be that person to, uh, to everybody that you interact with that wants to learn more about crypto and Bitcoin and, and the differences between them. Uh, because in the end of the day, it really truly is about decentralization and leveling the playing field. Uh, as, as Andreas has said for countless years, right? I think until we level the playing field, can we truly have complete 
you know, harmony in the world. And uh, maybe even poverty gets removed at some point. But uh, I know it's a dream worth fighting for. See you guys next time.